0: story you likely heard about this week. The director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Richard Cordray, stepped down. To replace him, Cordray promoted his chief of staff, Leandra English, to become deputy director and to serve as acting director until the Senate confirmed a replacement. But meanwhile, President Trump proposed his White House budget director, Mick Mulvaney, to be acting director instead. This all led to a pretty wild and very confusing day for CFPB employees on Monday when two acting directors with conflicting agendas came to work to fill one role. Ultimately, the question of who should be in charge moved to the courts where a federal judge ruled in favor of Trump's pick to fill the role. Now, that federal judge who made the ruling was nominated by Trump earlier this year. So all of that brings us to an ongoing story that you likely heard less about this week. A story that raises questions about checks and balances among the branches of government in our democracy. The Trump administration has been moving very quickly to fill a particularly high number of federal court vacancies, a move that has the potential to influence U.S. law for decades. But how unusual, if at all, are Trump's actions when it comes to rapidly filling these judicial vacancies? How can a single president reshape the judiciary? And what does it mean for the American people if he does? This is Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Later in this episode, we'll talk to a political science professor about the demographic breakdown of Trump's nominees and how it differs from that of presidents past. Here with me now to share his experience about presidential influence on the federal court system is our Supreme Court reporter, Robert Barnes. Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. So let's just start with outlining how the federal judiciary works. How many judgeships are in the federal judiciary?
1: Well, there are about 900 judgeships altogether, and they're divided among a number of courts. Everyone's familiar with the Supreme Court and its nine members, but the courts of appeals are divided up regionally. There are 13 of them. There's one specialty court, and then there are District courts all throughout the United States, Uh, only one district court in some of the small states, but many district courts in some of the larger uh, states.
0: Okay, so then these judgeships need to be filled by different presidents, you know, when a position opens up. Heading into Trump's presidency, how many vacancies were there in the federal judiciary?
1: Well, Trump really had sort of a historic opportunity here because there were more than 100 Vacancies. There were 54 people that President Obama had nominated that never were acted on by the Senate. The way it works, of course, is that the president nominates someone and then it is up to the Senate to either confirm or deny that person or just not hold a hearing on them, which is what happened at the end of the Obama presidency because Republicans control the Senate and they decided they weren't going to confirm for the most part any more Obama nominees. And so Trump came into office with a huge opportunity to change the federal judiciary.
0: So that's something that's allowed within the law. The Senate can just fail to hold a hearing.
1: That's right. Uh, And it happens in both administrations and both parties. I mean, when uh, one party controls the Senate and the other party controls the White House, um, for the usually the last year or so of the president's time in office, it is very hard to get judges confirmed.
0: OK, so Trump comes into office. He has an enormous number of vacancies or a seemingly very high number of vacancies, given the the Republicans delaying to hold those hearings. How many of Trump's nominees at this point now have been approved by the Senate? Uh,
1: well, 16 of them have been confirmed. He's nominated almost 60 And that may sound like a small percentage, but in fact, it's doing really well for a president. Usually, presidents uh, do not get their nominees confirmed so quickly. Among the circuit court, for instance, Obama only had one approved at this point in his presidency. The Senate is quickly confirming uh, President Trump's nominees for those really important circuit judgeships. And the reason they're so important is because that's where really the bulk of the work is done in the judiciary. The Supreme Court hears about 70, 75 cases a year, and uh, they're important. The courts of appeals spread out across the country, they hear tens of thousands of cases, and those cases rarely get to the Supreme Court, so that becomes the final say.
0: So, Potentially, over the course of four years, how many positions, how many vacancies might Trump have the opportunity to fill?
1: You know, it's a little hard to say. I mean, I think it's certainly fair to say, you know, hundreds, but it also depends on what happens in the midterm elections, what happens if the Democrats uh, somehow take control of the Senate. Then what's happening now will really slow down Mm -hmm. because right now it's moving very quickly the president has not had a single nominee turned down and many of these votes are on straight party line margins
0: so are those things unusual the speed and you know sort of the high number would any president jump on this opportunity or is this is this really abnormal to move so quickly
1: any president would jump on it but what has happened in the last few years is something that really democrats have themselves to blame for democrats when they controlled the Senate, were unhappy uh, with the way Republicans had slowed down, the minority Republicans had slowed down confirmations, And so they removed the filibuster option. That meant that it used to require 60 votes to move one of these nominees uh, across. The Democrats got rid of that. They were able to confirm a lot of President Obama's nominees. But what that means now is that Republicans can take advantage of that.
0: And so that's not the only tactic that they've taken to try to ensure confirmation of Trump's nominees. One of these steps that they've taken is to get rid of the blue slip policy. Can you explain what that is?
1: Well, the blue slip policy holds that home state senators have a lot of sway over who gets nominated from their states. And so it's sort of traditional on these courts of appeals that some judgeships come from certain states and that It used to be that the uh, nominee would not get a hearing unless both of the home state senators had returned literally a blue slip saying, I approve of this nominee, go ahead and and have a hearing. Republicans have changed that and said that they are not going to honor that anymore. They are going to go ahead and have a hearing on someone even if the home state senator has not returned this. And so... What that has meant is that these nominees now are moving forward at a rate uh, much faster. And, you know, the sort of hypocritical part of this is the reason there are so many of these, uh, part of the reason there are so many of these openings for President Trump to fill is because Republicans use that blue slip process uh, during President Obama's times to keep his nominees from getting a hearing.
0: One thing that's come up is a conservative proposal to increase the number of federal judgeships and therefore create even more positions that Trump could then fill. Is that a real possibility?
1: Well, that they would just simply create more judgeships. Uh, that would be something that Congress can do. This was a proposal from someone very influential on the right, but I have to say I haven't seen a whole lot of enthusiasm for it from actual legislators. And some of the judges, very conservative judges, have said that this is a terrible idea, that we really don't need that many new judges. And so uh, you're starting to see a a bit of a backlash against uh, that proposal. And it really is only a proposal at this point from uh, both people on the right and the left.
0: So Trump and Republicans are taking deliberate steps to move quickly to fill these judicial vacancies. But who exactly are they filling these judgeships with? Associate Professor of Political Science at Oregon State University Rory Salberg, along with her colleague Eric Waltenberg, examined the demographics of Trump's judicial nominees and how Trump's approach compares to presidents in recent history. I asked Rory about it.
2: So at this point, he has done 59 total nominations. He has 16 judges that have already been confirmed, including a Supreme Court justice. He has 27 nominations before the Senate Judiciary Committee and another 16 that are pending.
0: So what's the demographic breakdown of those nominees?
2: Well, it's, it's not hard to do that part because for the most part, they're white and male. 48 of his nominees are men. And only four of those men are people of color. Eleven nominees are women, and only one is a person of color. So generally white male dominating.
0: So Obama had appointed several dozen judges to potentially fill these seats. Has Trump actually followed through on any of those nominations that Obama had had suggested, or has he completely started fresh?
2: He has renominated a couple to three, I believe, of Obama's nominees. Not many of them. Obama left office with 54 judges, essentially nominees that never received any kind of hearing or confirmation vote. And then only, I think so far, three of them, if I'm remembering correctly, have been renominated.
0: How did the demographics of Obama's nominees compare to the demographics we've seen from these 59 nominees from Trump?
2: If we look at obama's judges overall they were more diverse than any president previous which isn't you know unexpected we expect over time we expect more diverse nominations in general but is that the uh, case
0: for republicans and and democrats that we expect to see a more diverse set of judges
2: yes although so george w bush actually had a pretty diverse cohort of judges It wasn't as diverse as Clinton's, but it was much more diverse than, say, Reagan's or H.W. Bush's. But Obama, he had uh, 42 percent of his appointments were women and 36 percent were people of color, with almost 15 percent being women of color.
0: So Trump clearly wants to appoint conservative judges. That's obviously a conservative president, wants to appoint conservative judges are conservative judges disproportionately white and male when you compare to liberal judges? Does he have fewer fewer non-white males to sort of pick from? That That is
2: a hard question. Um, and I don't really have any data on sort of the demographic makeup of the conservative population. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's certainly true if we look back, say, to Ronald Reagan, who was one of our presidents that we looked to who really wanted to uh, appoint very conservative judges to the bench, he didn't have a large number of of women or attorneys of color that were also conservative to pick from for a variety of reasons. Right, There weren't as many women or uh, minorities that had finished law school, that had risen to that level at this point. And the conservative movement, Reagan, it was still sort of changing and burgeoning at that point but today you know you really can't make that assumption you know in 1987 the ABA said that you know total minority enrollment was about 13,000 whereas by 2010 it's about 35,000 so the pool of minority candidates is growing it's much larger today than it was back in the 1980s women are now a majority and almost all law school classes. And women and minorities are certainly just not as monolithic if they ever were in terms of their ideology. So we can't just assume that minorities are going to be liberal or women are going to be liberal. Um, That's just not true. But I think maybe the best way to think about this is to look back to George W. Bush and his judges, because like Trump, Uh, G.W. Bush wanted to appoint young conservative judges like Trump. The Federalist Society has had a, you know, had a large hand in the selection of his judges. And if we look back to G.W. Bush, we find that he appointed 327 judges over eight years. 58 were judges of color, 71 were women. So that's about 18% were judges of color. And so it's, it's possible. Right. There, there's nothing that
0: suggests
2: that there aren't conservative women and conservative lawyers of color for Trump to pick
0: from. Why does diversity of our judges across the country matter? Why are the demographics of these federal court judges important?
2: There's really sort of two reasons why we want to think about or, or why diversity matters. At first is what you mentioned already, that these are lifetime appointments. So the men and women that are being appointed by Trump will be serving for decades to come. And given the large number of vacancies at the start of his term, it's possible that President Trump will appoint more judges than most previous presidents. He might, you know, appoint up to, if not more than half the federal bench if he, you know, continues to have a Senate majority and stays eight years. And while judges are more than just the sum of their demographic characteristics our research shows that your background characteristics really do affect your judicial decision making so if these men share similar work experience and i expect that they do then we're going to be looking at a bench that has you know one view of the law with little appreciation for you know all the complexities of our increasingly diverse society Your experience affects your interpretation of the law, and broader experience on the bench provides for more viewpoints and should generate better decisions, especially in these sort of small group decision-making settings that we have on, say, the courts of appeals or the Supreme Court. The second reason is that judges are really role models. They provide what academics call symbolic representation. So when I see women judges as a woman... I tend to believe that the judiciary is open to me, that it's working for me, that I will have, you know, a, a fair experience before the court. That leads me to support the judiciary, that provides it with with legitimacy. So if the federal bench doesn't reflect society, then large groups of people will not trust or support the courts. And that's really not a great outcome in a democracy with courts that rely on public support and compliance for their power.
0: Something that seems particularly unusual about Trump's nominees is what equates to a lack of experience in some cases. So we saw Brett Talley. He was recently approved by the Senate Judiciary Committee for a lifetime appointment to the bench. This is a 37-year-old white man who the American Bar Association said was unqualified to serve as a federal judge, yet he has been appointed. So why? Why might Trump nominate someone with such limited experience?
2: Polly is certainly not the first person to be nominated that doesn't have any judicial experience and probably not the first person to be nominated without much of any trial court experience. However, that unqualified rating from the ABA is really usually sort of a death knell for any kind of judicial nomination, so why did Trump pick him? You know, why did the Senate move forward with it or the Senate Judiciary Committee move forward with it? Well, if we look at Tali and just look at his sort of pedigree, right, he's got the elite law school. He has experience as a federal judicial clerk, um, both at the district court level and the court of appeals level. These are really highly prized, difficult to get jobs. And they are usually, you know, your entree, your prelude to a very lucrative legal career. He worked in both the Alabama and the U.S. Department of Justice. He's worked as a speechwriter for Mitt Romney, then a U.S. Senator. So overall, he has an incredibly impressive resume. As he noted in his confirmation hearing, you know, he worked in all three branches of government. He's worked at the state and federal levels as well. So, he brings a breadth of experiential diversity that really hasn't been that common in recent years on the federal bench. Combine that with his connections to the White House, I believe he's married to the chief of staff of the White House counsel. His appointment doesn't really seem that bizarre. The kicker is really that he's 37, so he could be on the bench for 30 to 40 years, um, and that he's also been publicly highly partisan which when you combine that with his lack of trial experience either before the bench or on the bench likely led to his unqualified rating, that, that you know, those partisan blog posts and tweets are going to affect what people would consider you know, your, your, your judicial temperament.
0: Is Trump's influence on the court system an overreach of power? Is it something that we haven't really seen before? Is he doing more than any other president would, given you know the circumstances that he's faced with? Or would any president reasonably fill as many judgeships as they could, if they had a Senate majority and they had these open vacancies?
2: So people might not like my answer, but I would say that Trump is taking advantage of the situation that has been provided for him by uh, the GOP leadership in the Senate that he's not overreaching in any way he's fulfilling his constitutional duty to nominate and fulfill and fill these vacancies he's doing it faster than previous presidents most presidents are a little bit slower off the mark and obama was particularly slow off the mark so when you compare just those two it looks like he's doing something that's kind of outside the realm of normal but He's actually only a little bit faster than if we look back to George W. Bush or Clinton in terms of how quickly he's getting his his nominees up to the Senate. The really big difference is the number of vacancies he has to fill that essentially all work on judicial nominees stopped for Obama's last year. So we had complete obstruction of the process and then once the GOP took over the Senate and Trump came in, they seem to have sort of taken off all the brakes and the, the Senate is moving with an alacrity with a speed that we also haven't seen before. So if anything, it's really more of an overreach or a breaking of precedent or norms by the GOP in the Senate than it is by President Trump.
0: Robert, I want to touch on the CFPB case from earlier this week, the decision to side with Trump's pick with Director Mick Mulvaney to serve as head of the CFPB. That decision was ultimately made by a Trump appointed judge here in D.C. How much might political ideology play a role in that judge's decision? Obviously, the judiciary should be independent, but you have a judge here who was confirmed in September, I believe. And he had to rule in a case where the president's perspective was very evident to the public. How does that play a role here? How does ideology play a role?
1: Well, ideology clearly plays a role in whether or not these judges are nominated. The president, no matter what party, looks at past rulings, looks at what they've written, looks at how these people view the law, and then makes the decision about whether that's the kind of person that they want to nominate or not. As you say when they take when they put the robe on, they're supposed to rid themselves of sort of partisan feelings, but it doesn't really affect their ideology. And whether or not they view things from a, you know, a certain perspective. And that's really true on both sides of the ledger, I think. I think one thing that reporters sometimes struggle with is, you know, do you always identify a judge as someone appointed by Obama, for instance, or appointed by Trump, because it does seem to make that connection that You know, maybe the decision wasn't really rendered impartially. I think that that's uh, a little unfair on one hand. On the other hand, I think people are interested in knowing something about the background of the judge.
0: Right. For example, could the Trump administration make a decision, like in the CFPB case, to take a risk? if they thought the case was going to end up in the hands of a judge that they had recently appointed is that a logical step?
1: well they don't know that uh, you know it's a, it, all of these courts operate with a sort of random Panel of judges at the appeals court level, or a random selection of a judge at the district court level. So you don't really know what it's going to go. Even on a court that has a fairly uh, liberal reputation, for instance, sometimes you'll get a panel of three conservative judges. So you don't really know uh, that it's going to come out that way. And also, the appeals process is part of what is supposed to even that out. I mean this case could go to the next level. And there it would be heard by judges, for the most part, that were appointed by Obama or uh, other Democratic presidents. So that's part of the appeals process and part of the idea that it won't be just one judge deciding everything.
0: Let's talk a little bit about voters and how courts play into voting decisions. So in the 2016 election, especially when it came to the Supreme Court vacancy, many people voted along party lines, simply decided to vote for President Trump on this idea that he would appoint a Supreme Court justice that was conservative. And now, of course, he's filling in all of these other vacancies. Is that a common voter motivation? Have you in your coverage kind of seen this grow over the past few you know, decades or so as we have this much more fractured political climate and people really want conservative versus liberal judges in, in these vacancies?
1: I think that this 2016 presidential election was the first time I've seen the candidates very openly talk about litmus tests that they had, especially for the Supreme Court. Trump said that it would be Uh, someone who would overturn Roe v. Wade and that it would be someone like Scalia. Very specific promises. Now, you know, when it comes down to it, do they ask these uh, nominees, you know, do you promise to overturn this case? They say no, that they're never asked that. But Certainly that was out there. On the other hand, Hillary Clinton said, for instance, that she would be looking for a justice that would overturn the Citizens United decision, a very uh, unpopular decision about uh, campaign finance. And so, I, you know, I found it surprising that they so openly talked about litmus tests. But as you say, it was very important, I think. Uh, I think polls later showed that one of the reasons that evangelical voters supported Trump was because of abortion, and they wanted someone on the Supreme Court, and they wanted people in uh, these judgeships that would be receptive to abortion restriction laws. And Republicans, I think, have always found the courts more important. It has been a higher issue of importance for them when they decide to vote than it has been for Democrats. Democrats usually list a number of other issues as being important to them before they get down to the Supreme Court or judgeships. It's usually much higher for Republican voters.
0: So interestingly, how important it should be to voters leads into my next question, which is the president has power across a wide range of areas. How does the the court system and the, the judiciary rank among where his power can most be exerted? Is he really influential? Is this a really influential
1: area for a It's president? a very influential area. I mean, uh, judges are appointed for life. Federal judges are. Uh, and so they serve well past the term of any president. Uh, I mean, if you look at the Supreme Court right now, for instance, we have a couple of People who are in their 80s, one about to hit 80, they have served for decades, long past the presidents who appointed them. And uh, the same is true throughout the federal judiciary. It, It really is the president's most lasting accomplishment.
0: All right. Well, that brings us to our final question here. We finish with a can he do that question every Mm -hmm. week. And, And this week, it's a big one, which is can one president, any president, reshape essentially an entire branch of government, in this case, the judiciary? And what's at stake if he does?
1: I think a president can, but uh, the president also knows that the next president can do it as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, for instance, when President Obama took office, I think nine of the 13 regional courts of appeals had majority judges who were appointed by Republicans. When he left eight years later, you know, that had been reversed. And now uh, President Trump has his chance to redo that. If he serves for eight years, I think he absolutely will really change the judiciary. It is something that is, as we've discussed, one of the most lasting uh, impacts that a president can have.
0: All right. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much, Robert. You guys can follow Robert Barnes on Twitter at?
1: scotusreporter. Reporter.
0: I'm <laughs> very literal. That's good. I like it. Or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. You've been listening to another episode of Can He Do That? Find us wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Radio Public. We will be there. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the patient and very talented Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. like,
2: can he do that? You should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com podcasts. The Washington, Washington,
1: Washington, Washington Post. Post.